and thank you all for joining us today for this briefing to discuss safe ways to enjoy the upcoming holidays amid the COVID-19 pandemic. On Thursday, November 19th, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention held its first telebriefing in months. Today, we are joined by Dr. Henry Walk, the incident manager for CDC's COVID-19 response. Thank you, Ben. As a country, we are seeing increases in cases, hospitalizations, and deaths because of COVID-19. COVID-19 is turning out to be quite a formidable foe. With Thanksgiving approaching, our hearts and minds turn to seeing families and friends as part of one of our nation's great traditions, and we all need to consider the safest way to celebrate this holiday. Amidst this critical phase of the COVID-19 pandemic, CDC is recommending against travel during the Thanksgiving period. CDC's, quote, strong recommendation that Americans stay home for Thanksgiving was a surprise, especially since President Trump had campaigned on the idea that President-elect Biden was the guy that wanted to cancel your holidays and family gatherings. Now, to be clear, the CDC wasn't canceling anything. It doesn't really have that power. It was updating its guidance. And the reason that we made the update is that the fact that over the last week, we've seen over a million new cases in the country. That's CDC's Aaron Sauber-Schatz, who went on to clarify just what the CDC saw as a safe Thanksgiving in 2020. The safest way to celebrate Thanksgiving this year is at home with the people in your household. If if people have not been actively living with you for the 14 days before you're celebrating, they are not considered a member of your household. And therefore, you need to take those extra precautions, even wearing masks within your own home. So, yeah, Thanksgiving isn't going to be quite the same this year. But there is light at the end of this desperate tunnel. Healthcare workers and first responders may have access to a safe vaccine against this coronavirus by the end of the year. By summer, access to a vaccine might be widespread. And on January 20th, a new administration will take the reins. And that administration is already planning how it will handle the pandemic. And it's put together its own coronavirus task force. Welcome to Side Dish, a Petri Dish Extra. I'm Bonnie Petrie, and today we're talking to a member of that COVID-19 task force, Dr. Celine Gounder. Good afternoon, everyone. Back on Monday, November 9th, President-elect Joe Biden stood behind a podium at his transition team's headquarters in Delaware. As I said on Saturday, I'm humbled by the trust and confidence the American people have placed in me and in Vice President-elect Harris. And we're ready to get to work addressing the needs of the American people. Today, that work begins. Their top priority? The pandemic. So that's why today I've named the COVID-19 Transition Advisory Board, comprised of distinguished public health experts, to help our transition team translate the Biden-Harris COVID-19 plan into action, a blueprint that we can put in place as soon as Kamala and I are sworn in to office on January 20th, 2021. That 13-member task force, the advisory board, officially met for the first time that very day. Good morning. Um, One of the members of the board is Dr. Celine Gounder. Dr. Gounder joins us today. 
I am an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine and Bellevue Hospital. Uh, I am married to Grant Wall, who is a soccer journalist. Um, and we overlap a little bit in our careers in that we both podcast, actually. Um, and we are the proud parents of two toy poodles. <laughs> Don't we all podcast now, though? <laughs> gotten a lot more common, I suppose. Okay, so um, let's get started. President-elect Biden has said there's already a blueprint for a pandemic strategy that will be the foundation for what they begin to implement on day one in January. So you've seen the blueprint. What does it look like? Yeah, um, so a couple things that I would say are very early priorities for the Biden-Harris team, one of which is um, that the president-elect plans to invoke the Defense Production Act as one of his first executive orders. And that allows um, him to really commandeer manufacturing capacity to force manufacturers to massively scale up production of personal protective equipment. So gowns, gloves, masks, face shields, that sort of thing, which remain in short supply, by the way. Um and we have been pleading, those of us working on the front lines have been pleading with the current administration to invoke the Defense Production Act to really ramp up uh, production of supplies, and they, they simply have not done so. Um, so that's going to be a big change. That um, Defense Production Act can also be invoked to scale up production of other essential things like ventilators or test kits. Um, so you're going to definitely see that invoked. Um, and then in addition to that, you're going to see a big shift in the tenor with respect to testing. The current administration has really actively discouraged testing, uh, said that there is just too much testing. Uh, whereas under the Biden-Harris administration, there's going to be a big emphasis on scaling up testing. So I think about it like a big iceberg. You have this big part of it that's underwater, and then you have a small part of it that's above water, which really is is represents the people who are getting sick, the people who are getting hospitalized, people are dying, which is not a trivial number. That's a lot of people. But you have many, many, many more who are not having severe illness, but are weak links in the chain, so to speak. They are uh, transmitting the virus and, and contributing um, to the problem. So we need to be able to uncover, to make visible what is essentially invisible by massively ramping up testing. When you talk about things like testing, I think about the people who are now considered essential workers who, you know, can't work from home and they have much more exposure to this virus. And very often these essential workers are black and brown people who are just also being battered physically by COVID. They're getting sick in higher numbers than their white counterparts and they're dying in higher numbers than their white counterparts. So do you have any idea why this is? And then what do you plan to do about it? Well, I want to be very clear that it is not because people of color have a genetic susceptibility um, to, to the virus. That, that is not what's happening here. It's a combination of really two things. One, that they are concentrated in professions and jobs where they are at higher risk. There are fewer protections. They're more likely to be in jobs where they have to perform those jobs in person, can't work virtually from home, and don't have the safety 
safety nets um, that would help them get through a period like this that would allow them to take time off or, or um, you know, work from home. Um, and so th- that it, it, they're more likely to be exposed. And then on the other side is once they're exposed, um, for a whole host of reasons, they're more likely to get much sicker and to have poor access to healthcare. So they're more likely to get sicker uh, because of underlying medical conditions. Uh, and this is not to blame them at all. Uh, the reason that they are at higher risk of underlying medical conditions very much has to do with um, really structural racism and the way our policies are, everything from housing to employment to education. Um, and, and so all of these things additively increase the risk of diabetes or high blood pressure and so on. Um, and those are risk factors for more severe COVID disease. And a portion of that population, and really the entire population that gets infected, is at risk, it appears, for possibly long-term chronic disease. We've talked about it several times on this show, a variety of symptoms linked to what people are calling long COVID or long-term COVID. So it seems like we need some sort of infrastructure also for the long-term, right? Well, you know, I, I think we have to think about this as a uh, disability, possibly, that people who have, uh, who are long haulers, as we call them, who have uh, persistent symptoms of COVID for months later uh, after the initial infection, uh, this can be really, really disabling. And so we need to have ways of, of recognizing that, um, supporting people who are dealing with that. And I just don't think we're quite there yet. So let's talk about schools. I know everyone, including me, wants in-person instruction for their kids, but we want it to be safe, too, for our kids and for the teachers and the bus drivers, the cafeteria workers and everyone involved with public education. So so talk to me about schools. Well, I think this is one area we've learned a lot since the spring um, in terms of what um, what age groups in what settings Um, do you see the most transmission? And what we know now is whether it is uh, small private gatherings in the home or indoor dining, um, those are situations where people are typically eating and drinking. They're around people they know pretty well. They let down their guard. They take off their masks. Um, There's not very good ventilation. So for all of those reasons, those are the settings that are definitely the highest risk. Um, on the lower risk end is, you know, the schools. Um, this is based on basic science in the lab, as well as what we've seen epidemiologically through observation of uh, schools being open or closed in Asia and Europe and in the United States. And in particular, elementary schools seem to be very low risk for um, propagating transmission. Now, you do see increasing risk in the high school and college age students, so that's sort of a different category. But the youngest kids are the ones who really need that in-person learning the most, who benefit from it the most. And so I think of that as a, a kind of essential service that is relatively low risk. So you're saying keeping at least elementary schools open is a priority. Now, people have been worried that since we really don't know the long-term impact of this virus on anyone, including kids, that maybe this isn't such a great idea. So how do we safely keep schools open with in-person instruction? 
Well, a couple things. One, you need to suppress community transmission. So it means there's a trade-off. It means that if you want to keep schools open, you are going to have to restrict other things and, and try to main, you know rein in the transmission that's happening. The other thing is you really need to support schools. So that means providing them with the funding necessary to uh, buy the personal protective equipment, to improve ventilation in the schools, um, to reduce class size um, so that kids can be a little bit farther apart from one another. Um, but that requires a real commitment and investment. You know, one thing I've heard from various experts here in Texas is that we were doing okay with, you know, distance learning and hybrid learning and some in-person instruction, but then some activities, school-adjacent activities like contact sports, we love our Friday night lights here, started up again, and they're more risky, and they made school more risky than it might have been otherwise. Yeah, I think the things to avoid are um, indoor social activities, uh, including sports indoors. In terms of outdoor sports, um, contact sports, you also really want to avoid. I think playing tennis would be fine, you know, in contrast to football. Um, and, and so I think some of this is a question of common sense. Like you're applying the same rules uh, that we do for other things to this. So can you do it outdoors? Can you do it wearing a mask? Can you do it at least six feet away from other people? So now we're all watching the wave of coronavirus sort of roll into rural areas of the country. Now, I grew up in a rural area where cases are starting to increase and my hometown, like a lot of places across the country, a lot of people didn't believe the pandemic was real. And, and you know, some probably still don't. But regardless, that wave is just rolling right in. So what do we do about these rural areas that that don't have the healthcare infrastructure in place to handle it? You know, they don't they don't have ICU beds. They don't have, you know, a lot of medical staff. Well, there's no great answer to that. Um you know, unfortunately, it's it's how our healthcare system is structured, how it's incentivized, um, and that's not something that's going to change overnight. We know that healthcare reform is a very challenging area in general, um, and that it's once a decade or every couple decades that we're able to truly um, move the needle on that. And so, really, you know. In my mind, the most important thing these rural areas can do is prevent transmission in the first place, um, because we are simply not going to be able to scale up local health facilities, health care to the degree that will be needed to care for those patients otherwise. Here in Texas this week, we're seeing a critical shortage of staff. Uh, around 130 hospitals are critically short of health care workers, which is by far the highest number in the nation. So what can be done about that? Because, you know, it's happening everywhere now with this surge. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a tough one because um, I can say back in March and April, some of our uh, visiting, uh, you know, rotating, traveling nurses and doctors came from Texas. Um, I remember talking to some of them and asking them, you know, what what inspired you to come up here? And, you know, what, what were things like back in Texas back then? Um, and that is one area it's going to be very difficult to pay it back in a sense, because everybody's now dealing with a surge. Uh, everybody's short staffed. So it's not like you can move people around the country, maybe the way you could earlier on. Um, everybody's needed where they are right now. And you know what gets me taking off my reporter hat and putting on my person hat? 
Um, it's that, you know, this didn't have to happen. We had more than six months between the New York City surge in the spring and now to prepare for this nationwide surge that was predictable and predicted. And if that's frustrating for me, a reporter, that's got to be extremely frustrating for a healthcare worker like you. <laughs> so many things about this pandemic are frustrating to me. Um, some of those frustrations are the same as anyone else's frustrations. But yeah, I mean, I, I think um, realizing this didn't have to happen, feeling like we have been really underappreciated underappreciated and taken for granted. Um, I was having an interesting conversation earlier today with somebody, this idea that you're a caregiver, whether you're a mom or you're a health caregiver, it's like there's this moral obligation that you have to step in and do this. And I think we all feel it very strongly. But at the same time, I feel like that goodwill has been taken advantage of. Um, and other people have a responsibility here, too, um, just as we have a responsibility to take care of the patients in front of us. The big hope right now to get us all out of this is eventually everybody getting vaccinated. So so let's talk about vaccines. I think some people think, you know, oh, there's going to be a vaccine by the end of the year and yay, pandemic over, happy new year, you know, and then just, you know, shoot off fireworks and blow in our noisemakers and that kind of thing. But obviously that's not how it works. So please tell me how it might work and who's going to get in the front of the line here. Yeah, so we'll probably have, um, you know, 20 plus million doses of vaccine available towards the end of the year. Um, those are going to be vaccines that require two doses, though. So you have to divide that number by two in terms of people vaccinated. Um, and those who will be and those who will be prioritized will be uh, frontline healthcare workers, other essential workers. So people who are at risk because of the jobs that they do. Um, and you really don't want frontline and essential workers getting sick and dying from COVID because then those are the very people you need to care for everyone else. Um, and you find then yourself even more short staffed. Um, so that's the, the first high priority group. Um, you're also going to see people in extremely high risk settings. So in particular, nursing homes, assisted living facilities, where you have the elderly um, living in relatively close quarters, um, those are going to be prioritized. Um, and then beyond that, communities of color are definitely going to be um, a, a priority as we formulate our plans. When you talk about vaccines and communities of color, I think immediately about, you know, vaccine hesitancy. A recent stat, the Harris poll, found that only 43 percent of black people polled are interested in getting a vaccine as soon as it's available. The same poll found that 59 percent of white people would get vaccinated as soon as the shot is ready. But even that's a more than 10 percent drop from the last poll that stat did. And as you know, we need around 70 percent of the population to be immunized if we want any kind of herd immunity. So so what are your thoughts on all of that? 
Well, I think, first of all, you need to understand there are so many different reasons people are skeptical of vaccines and hesitant to get vaccinated. So you have the people who don't want to be told by the government what to do. You have the people who don't trust the pharmaceutical industry. You have people who think natural is always better, which is not true, actually, when it comes to vaccination. And then you have people who, for example, communities of color, who remember a very long history of discrimination against people of color by the healthcare system, who have very good reason not to trust the healthcare system. And unfortunately, now during the pandemic, the approval of coronavirus vaccines has really been politicized. Um, and so you have people who do not trust the process, who are worried that the FDA is not going to do their usual job of vetting the vaccine, that they just are going to rush this process. Um, and so I can understand, you know, why, why they would feel that way. You guys on the advisory board, you don't get to do anything really until the 20th of January. And nationally right now, we're approaching 2,000 COVID deaths a day and nearly 200,000 new infections every day. So, so what does it feel like to have to watch this happen when you've got nearly two months before you effectively can do anything about it? Um, it is truly terrifying. Um, I am myself going to be on the wards at Bellevue Hospital um, at the end of December and over New Year's. And I know that is, I've seen the modeling. I know we're going to be hit really hard with hospitalizations for COVID by then. And it's very frustrating. I mean, even me on the advisory board, um, I, that makes me feel impotent. This idea of that here's this tsunami that is going to hit us. And there's not that much I can do to prevent that um, until... Um, you know, we are as a team in office. Other than that, you know, we're kind of on our own for the next two months. Advice? I think there are a few things every single person can do is in their power to do. One is wear a mask. Masks are cheap, effective. They do not shut down the economy. And if you want to keep the economy open, wearing a mask is actually one of the very best ways you can do that. I think it's really unfortunate the way masks have been politicized. It would be like politicizing toilet paper. Um, I'm a, you know, whatever political party. So I use toilet paper and I'm whatever political party. And so I don't use toilet paper. I mean, that would be ridiculous. And that's kind of where we are with masks. Um, the other things that would be really important to do celebrate the holidays safely. And the CDC has actually recommended now that people do not, um, travel for the holidays. To me, it's it's less about travel per se. It's more about spending time with people outside of your household bubble. So that could be somebody who's just down the block. That could be somebody who's, you know, all the way across the country. When you are around anybody else to wear your mask, to remain six feet apart, at least, um, to spend that time outdoors rather than indoors. And if you are indoors, to open your doors and your windows wide so you have really good ventilation. Um, those are all really important things to do. I think we can be creative. Maybe this year, Thanksgiving is a picnic outdoors and a hike as opposed to a family dinner around the table. Thank you so much, Dr. Gounder. Happy Thanksgiving. So when I was a little girl, I had an irrational fear of what I knew then as tidal waves. 
I had read a story in school about a child in Japan and tidal waves, and though I don't remember what happened to this fictional Japanese child in the story, it couldn't have been good because I remember suddenly looking at the river on which my own village was situated with great suspicion. Could a tidal wave, really what I know now is a tsunami, come from me? In my child's imagination, I saw a tsunami as a giant wave, as tall as the Empire State Building, which was the tallest building this rural northern girl knew of then. In my mind, this giant wave would just crash over my community, smashing everything flat in an instant, killing us all if we didn't hear it coming. I spent way too much time worrying about this as I tried to sleep, listening for the sound of a skyscraper-sized wave that would consume us all, ready to run as fast as my little legs would carry me, gathering up my brothers, my sister, and of course our dogs along the way. The plan really wasn't a great one, which is fine because I now know that's not at all how tsunamis work anyway, not really. On March 11th, 2011, A 9.1 magnitude quake convulsed the Earth below the Pacific Ocean, more than 200 miles northeast of Tokyo. The resulting tsunami rushed toward Japan at the speed of a jet plane with slightly less energy than an atomic bomb. As I watched video of trillions of pounds of water devouring parts of Japan back in 2011, I was struck by how the wave didn't look like this giant monster I imagined, just breaking over everything at once. It smashed into the coast, yes, but then the water just pushed inland with incredible force, carrying with it boats, cars, houses, even burning buildings as it voraciously consumed everything in its path, carrying people, the injured, the dead. Those on the shore were devastated immediately. Those inland had some warning, some opportunity to escape, but that ravenous wave was coming for them, whether they believed it was coming or not. If they prepared, they could maybe get away. If not, I'm sure you see where I'm going with this. So the tsunami of coronavirus infections that engulfed American coastal cities in March and April and southern cities in the summer, it was always pushing into our interior cities and rural areas. We could choose to prepare for it, or we could just go on with our regular lives like it wasn't coming. And now, here we are more than a quarter of a million Americans have died. Well over a thousand new infections are being reported every single day. Intensive care units across the country are full or beyond full. We have critical shortages of healthcare workers all over the place, in many cases because healthcare workers too are getting sick. And because COVID is everywhere, Texas can't call New York for help, South Dakota can't call California, and Thanksgiving is here. Millions of people are choosing to travel this week, no matter what the CDC says, perhaps bringing the virus with them to their destinations, like a burning building on a tidal wave, or possibly picking it up where they're going and bringing it back home. This tsunami is engulfing the country, and by Christmas, if we're not smart, 
this whole nation will be underwater. See, this is the thing. I know we all miss our friends and families. I know we're all sick of isolation. I know we're so tired of this sea of sadness and we just want to celebrate something <laughs> after nine months surrounded by sickness and death. I want that too, so much. Dr. Gounder just outlined for us some of the strategies the Biden administration plans to start implementing on January 20th, a coherent national strategy. And vaccines, they're on the way too. If we just hold on just a little bit longer, we can have safe Thanksgivings with our friends and families next year. Can you imagine it? The celebrations we'll have? And this year, if you're going to holiday with anyone outside of your household, anyone that you don't see every day, I'm not going to shame you. No, I understand. But I will second Dr. Gounder's suggestion that you please get creative. Have a turkey day picnic in your yard if you can, if it's not too cold. It may be a new tradition. You might love it. And I know you want a hug. I'm a hugger, and I miss hugs more than just about anything I can think of. Hold off a little longer on that too, okay? Keep your distance. Wear a mask. So yes, this Thanksgiving is gonna be a little different, but it doesn't have to be bad. It can be infused with deep gratitude and profound hope for the future. That's what Thanksgiving's all about, isn't it? So happy Thanksgiving, everyone. As of this week, we've been doing this show, Petri Dish, for eight months, and I am so thankful that you've chosen to take this journey alongside us. It just, it means so much to me. Thank you. This Thanksgiving episode of Petri Dish was produced by me. Our sound designer is Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. TPR's news director is Dan Katz. Mark Mehmet is managing editor of the Texas Newsroom. This podcast is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration between public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.